Howdy. Welcome to another week of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the pleasure of speaking with author of a brand new critical biography of Herman Bovink, James Eglinton. He is a senior lecturer in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh. If you enjoy our conversation, you can find that biography anywhere you get your books. Before we get started, I wanted to point you to another systematician on the Canon Press shelf that I think you'd enjoy. Jonathan Edwards and his book, Religious Affections, which is now available in the Canon Press Christian Heritage series. Don't miss, it has a fantastic introduction from Joe Rigney. And now, without further ado, meet Dr. James Eglinton. All right, now welcoming on Dr. James Eglinton. He is the senior lecturer in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh in Edinburgh, Scotland. And he is the author of a brand new critical biography of theologian Herman Bovink. Thank you again, sir, for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for the invite to come and talk. Yes, yes, of course. So you wrote a biography of theologian Bovink, as I, as I mentioned. In terms of people that you want to know more about, how did it come about that you wanted to know more about Bovink? Enough to write a critical biography. Yeah, thanks. Um, I really enjoy reading biography anyway, and I find biographies of theologians are fascinating if they're done well. Um, I teach a course every couple of years here in Edinburgh on modern Christologies, where we look at a range of figures from the 19th and 20th centuries and try and get to the heart of how they understand the person and work of Christ. But I begin every lecture with a 10-minute microbiography of the figure that we're looking at. So when I was first preparing that course, it gave me an excuse to read lots and lots of biographies of different theologians. And I found just being able to get into the, the personal background, the context that the theologian operates in and all the factors that shape that person really enriched my view of the theologian as well. Um, so I think that biographies of theologians are such a, a worthwhile genre anyway, and so helpful. So I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the genre. And in terms of Bavink, um, so he's someone who has quite a, a few biographers already, or who has had in the century since he died, which isn't surprising because he was a great thinker and lived a fascinating life, did a lot of interesting things, and was also a polymath as well. And polymaths always attract lots of biographers because their lives are so rich in terms of interaction with different people and accomplishments in different fields. So they're, they're really interesting anyway, and they tend to attract people who want to try and put the puzzle together and then explain it to others. So Bavink has attracted quite a few biographers, and um, there are two particularly lengthy Dutch biographies, which both are, have distinct strengths in certain ways. Um, and then there are a few shorter Dutch biographies as well that came out, you know, once in a decade or so as people started to think a bit more about his significance in the Netherlands. And we have one, well, there was one previous English biography, but um, I wanted to tell quite a different story about Bavink. But I think for me, it was um, being attracted to te well, telling his story as, as a reformed Christian theologian polymath who lived uh, at such an interest, in such an interesting period historically in the mid 19th century and then into the first two decades of the 20th century, and who had some kind of grand unifying vision for the Christian faith, for life in the world, for how to articulate all of these things and how they fit together, and who lived a life that actually demonstrates what he was trying to do with that view. So 
I was drawn to him, I guess, in, in that kind of a way. Sure. I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, it does. Well. Could you tell me about the qualifier critical biography? Was that just a marketing move? Or what do you see about your biography uh, in relation to the others, maybe, that would, that would qualify it as a critical biography? Okay, so thanks. That's a helpful question as well. Critical biography is a distinct subgenre of biography. So biography is, is a literary genre that is telling a life story. Um, and there are lots of ways that you can approach how you tell the story of someone's life and also lots of motivations for why you might want to do that. Um, so we could think about um, one group of biographies that we could call commemorative biography, where the point of telling the life story is that you, you're trying to manage someone's reputation okay, for all kinds of different reasons. That might be for hagiographical purposes that you want to show the world that there was this great saint and um, that person's life should inspire you. Um, or it might be the kind of glossy authorized biography, as it's called, that you might see in an airport bookshop um, before you get on a plane where it's endorsed by the person whose life story is being told. Okay. And that kind of commemorative biography isn't very interested in facts about that person's life that might not portray that person in the most flattering light. Okay. Um, because it's high, you know, hagiographical in purpose, so you don't yeah. really want to draw the reader's eye to spectacular failures in that person's <laughs> life. Or if it's an authorized biography, the person who's doing the authorizing probably doesn't want the reader to know about parts of their lives where they've really messed up or where their achievements you know, fell flat. Um, so there's that whole genre of commemorative biography that uh, tends to be kind of popular and is written in more of a journalistic style and where the biographer has a particular agenda, which is the promotion of the person. Critical biography, rather than commemorative, is a different genre altogether. Um, it's not as popular a genre at the moment, um, but if you go back uh, a few decades, then you find lots and lots of um, critical biographies where that's always the subtitle. So it's a different approach to writing a biography um, in the first place, where the critical aspect is the approach that you take to sources. So uh, you as a critical biographer are committed to saying what the sources allow you to say, but also require you to say. So if you come across things in the sources that show your figure in a less than flattering light, you have to make that available to the reader. Um, so the point of a critical biography is quite different. It's actually to try to understand the complexity of someone's life in relation to their historical context, and also um, often the complexity of their works and the things that they produced in the course of that life, um, so that you can put this all together in quite a different way, I guess. So the purpose of the book isn't just that you know, you'll come away from it thinking, wow, wasn't that a fantastic person? Instead, you'll come away with a different sense of understanding how that person's life emerged and formed and fits together in some kind of a way. So it's not critical in the sense of just being an attempt to cut down Herman Bavinck and critique him relentlessly. <laughs> um, it's also not critical in terms of his theology. So I'm not there to tell you whether he was a good theologian or a bad theologian or whether his theology was right or not. That's up to the reader to make that judgment after reading what I've set out about his life and the overall shape of his thoughts and the reasons that it developed in particular directions. I think for some readers today, maybe a, a bit of a primer on what is a critical biography might be helpful because it's quite a different sort of biography to the, the popular glossy authorized biography and also the old school hagiography as well, the lives of saints for devotional inspiration. 
So it's critical in quite a distinct sense, but also in a sense that's very recognizable if you've read other biographies from slightly further back in the past. Very helpful. Do you mind introducing us to the man himself, who you wrote about? Sure. So his name was Herman Bavink. He was from the Netherlands. He was born in the middle of the 19th century in 1854, and he lived until 1921. Um, he was a reformed Christian and was born into a really fascinating social context. Uh, if we think about the Netherlands today, we tend to think about the, the most liberal country in the Western world, um, where you, you're truly free to think and say and believe and do whatever you want. Um, to quite a startling degree, even to people in other Western secular countries. But the Netherlands that he was born into was quite a different place, and particularly the Netherlands that his parents had grown up in. So in the first half of the 19th century, the Netherlands was not a liberal democracy. It was ruled by an authoritarian monarch, and um, the Bavink family were, was part of a church denomination that effectively was an, an illegal church. Um, they'd broken away from the state reformed church on account of theological liberalism. And because of that, they were persecuted by their own government, by their own state. Um, so his parents had grown up in the last phase of the Netherlands pre-democratic history. And then that all changed in 1848. There was a year of revolutions across Europe and monarchs lost their powers and um, democracy became the new norm across Europe. And that happened in the, ne the Netherlands too. So Herman, their son, was born into this brand new social experiment where all of a sudden you are free to think and say what you want and to be part of whichever religious group you want. Um, and if you're from one of these formerly persecuted churches, all of a sudden your children have a whole new range of social possibilities ahead of them. You could even have the ambition to send them to university, for example, or hope that your child might grow up to be a member of parliament. Uh, which would have been unimaginable before the move to democracy and to, to liberal democracy. So he was born into this new social experiment, and his parents were upwardly mobile members of the new middle class, which also was being created around them uh, because they were in the context of the second industrial revolution. So um, his parents were very ambitious for him and for his brothers, um, that they would have lots of opportunities in life that he didn't have. But they also were very pious, orthodox, reformed Christians as well. And they wanted um, their children to hold on to both of those things. So his life is a really fascinating one because of how far he was able to develop in terms of that sense of ambition. Um, so he becomes this polymath, uh, nationally known figure, um, even a person of international um, significance. He took a trip to the United States and was received by the president at the White House. And yet he did all of that whilst holding on to the, the roots of his, of his own orthodox Calvinistic faith as well. So he, he lived a really fascinating life. Um, he's best known nowadays for his reformed dogmatics. It was a four-volume vo four work in Christian theology, and uh, it's translated into lots of languages now, and is, is widely read and recognized as a, as a classic of theology, theological writing. But in his own lifetime, he did lots and lots of things. Um, as I think I said already, he was a, really a polymath in his own context. So he was a national newspaper editor, a prolific journalist. He was the leader of a political party. Um, he spent a decade as a member of parliament, and he was a traveler at a, in a phase when international travel was this a very new thing that, that you could do, you know, because of the invention of the, the steam engine, you could sail across the Atlantic and back in a matter of, of months, you know, or, or travel around and see North America and then come back and tell people what you'd seen. So to be a traveler was a distinct kind of 
calling in its own way um, in that phase of history. Uh, and also a travel writer. Um, he was a biographer. He was a Bible translator. He was uh, a pioneer for increasing the increasing participation of women in society as well, and women's voting rights. Um, he he was one of the architects of the the modern Dutch educational system, which still exists in pretty much the same form today. Uh, so he he affected everything around him, and and was a person that you know, he was a household name in his own context towards the end of his life. And coming from the background that he did, when for his parents, you know, when they were raising him as a as a small child, all of this was a huge question, an open ended question: What could our son become in our culture? What can he become whilst also retaining his faith as well? Uh, so he was a truly fascinating figure. The majority of that was all fascinating news to me. So I, I mentioned before we started that a uh, few, maybe it's two thousand seventeen. At this point, but I, with a group of guys, did did the all four volumes of a systematics, and you know, when I picked up your book, I was just like, man, what is the kind of person who writes a systematic theology? And I'll be honest, I was very surprised to find uh, and to meet the Herman Bovink that you portray. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit, like, w- what is a kid like that grows up to be? that kind of person what what was uh maybe even what was his education like his educational track was really interesting in the first place so if you think about how it's it's not really surprising in the 21st century in the western world certainly not in the uk also not in the united states i think if you meet someone and they tell you that they went to university after they finished high school that's just pretty normal. In the UK, the government tries to get uh, an astonishingly high part of the population th- into and through university and really encourages that. If you think about the Netherlands, though, when Bavink was a university student, it was a country. So the population was, uh, I forget the exact figure, you know, three point something million people, um, of whom around uh, 1,200, around 1,200 people were university students. So the percentage of the population that actually went to university was so exceptionally small. So if you end up there, you're in a very privileged position in the first place. And universities at that stage still were basically a a training ground, a finishing school for the sons of the aristocracy, uh, who would then go on to become lawyers and government ministers and ministers in the state church as well, in the Dutch Reformed Church. So if you, and Bavink ended up there at the oldest, most um, prestigious elite university in, in the country, at the University of Leiden. But what's interesting about Bavink is that he wasn't a son of the aristocracy. In fact, as I said before, he was part of the upwardly mobile middle class. So he's part of a new social demographic who are trying to um, push up and up and up um, in terms of social standing. So they're really climbing the ladder. And um, what was interesting about that with his parents is that they uh, had various choices about where to direct their um, you know, new middle-class child or children in terms of education. And um, at this point, when he was a child, most Dutch children um, worked in farms or in factories. Um, even the kids who did get to go, to go through schooling, they also worked part-time in fields and in factories. So the percentage of the population um, whose children just went to school full time and didn't have to work on a farm and didn't or didn't have to work in a factory was also a smaller part of the population. And I think what's interesting about Herman Bavink and his parents in that context is that his father himself wrote a quite a long autobiography 
where he reflects at various points on deficiencies in his own education growing up. So his father was from Germany originally. Um, he went to a, a local school um, where um, the education didn't really prepare him well for further study. It's effectively a primary school education uh, or elementary school education. Um, and then after that, he pursued a training as a wheel turner. And, and then after that, he went to the Netherlands to go to seminary. But his, when he reflects on how his education had prepared him for seminary, and um, he had to brush up on so many things or gain new areas of knowledge that he hadn't picked up in schooling just to be able to cope in seminary. And he reflects a lot about how poor his own education was. And you can see within that the longings for a better education for his own children. And I think that what you can see in, his, in Bavink's father's life is that he uh, so he became a pastor in the Netherlands, but he seems to strategically position himself um, in ways that then will give his children better access to education. So he he took a call to a congregation that happened to be in the same small town as a, a very good, uh, very educationally modern boarding school that was run by a member of their denomination. So and then that's where Herman Bavink um, spends his I guess in. U.S. terms, his elementary school and middle school, and then um, some of his secondary or his, his high school education in a school where he he was taught a, a really interesting modern curriculum, and that was very unusual in that kind of context. You know, to get access to native English speakers to teach you English, native German speakers to teach you German, and French speakers to teach you, teach you French, and to learn all kinds of modern skills as well, like accounting, and to learn um, piano and do gymnastics. So that's a, a very privileged position to be in if you are the young Herman Bavink getting that kind of education. But at this point, the government is trying to create a middle class because, as I said, it's the second industrial revolution. And um, with that, you then get the creation of a new kind of, I guess that you, in the States, you might call it a kind of community college level education for this new middle class. So it's not, you know, kind of classical university education. It's it's more practically oriented, um, but it'll teach you professional skills. So you know you go, you'll go on to become you know office managers, accountants, secretaries, uh, you know engineers, that kind of stuff. And um, that was a really common educational path then for middle class, the new middle class families to send their kids into because you know it was a path towards a, a good stable income and long term employment. But the Baving parents didn't choose that. Um, for Herman, which is interesting as well. So they seem to have a different set of ambition. And instead, they sent him to a, a school called a gymnasium, um, which is the kind of school, a classical school, where you would be taught uh, you, very heavily in Latin, uh, taught Greek, and um, given a very classical education. And that was the stepping stone between high school and university. So Baving followed that kind of track as well. Um, and then when you look at the people that he was in this gymnasium school with, the, you know, they, they go on to achieve a lot. Um, the current prime minister at that point had gone to the same gymnasium as Herman Bavink, and his, some of his closest friends also go on to become university professors and they're teenagers together in the gymnasium. So he, he has a really privileged education, actually. Very, very interesting. So very classically grounded in languages, in the classics as well, in terms of um, Latin literature, classical Greek literature. Um, lots of reflection on the ancient world. So quite typical of the, the spirit of the time there as well in valuing those kinds of education. But if you had that kind of education, a lot of middle-class people would see you as elitist. And there was a, actually quite a strong anti-Latin drive in the, in, amongst the new middle-class to see it as a bit pretentious and not really useful for the world of work, uh, this new world of work that was being created. So 
Um, the kind of education that he has is interesting because it positions him in a slightly awkward tension to most people from his denomination who were part of this you know, new middle class. And then the, 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 the elites and the sons of the aristocracy amongst whom he was now moving, but who were uh, not really part of his church scene. So he's, he's always someone who's building bridges and learning how to move between um, different groups in society. And you see that in his education as well. He was also just quite a normal teenager as well. When you look at his, his education, um, he was in love with a girl. Um, you see things in his diaries from that period about um, working out how do you follow Jesus well as a teenager if some of your friends don't do that and aren't interested in it. Wow. So they're, they're very common themes as well that come across. Yeah. Now, I suppose it's the nature of a critical biography, but, but you also do include that he was a terrible teenage poet. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, is, yeah, is nothing yeah. sacred? Is nothing left? You know, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that needs to be out there. Well, so the, his teenage poetry is fascinating because it shows us him in a phase of life uh, and a very important part of his life that, biograph that no previous biographer has, uh, has included, um, which is that from his mid-teenage years, his very earliest diary entries, until the age of 31, he was in love with a woman and he hoped to marry her, but um, it never happened because legally he had to get her father's permission. And the father was always completely un unrelenting and unyielding and wouldn't grant permission. Um, but his early teenage poetry is, is about this this young woman, Amelia Dendecker. And um, I think what's fascinating about the teenage poetry is that you can see that he has this sense of the epic. Like there's one marriage proposal poem that I translated and included in the biography and tried to translate into an equivalent English poetic form, um, which was really fun to do, but quite challenging as well. But for someone so young to try and write this, this really epic marriage poem, it you know, obviously didn't work and he didn't end up <laughs> marrying her. But then some of his other poetry from that phase is, is really you know, cheesy. It's in English. Um, it's quite funny to read, um, but it's also kind of sincerely romantic as well. So it's a fascinating window into his very young life. So it's previous biographers haven't included it. The Dutch biographers didn't. Okay. Um, I assume that what you can tell from their biographies that they had read his diaries, but they didn't mention this this girl or his attachment to her, presumably because they were writing in a context where immediate family members were still present, and then that maybe constrained the sense of freedom they had to tell this part of his story. And the the one previous English biography didn't mention it, um, and uh, I'm not sure why, but. Um, it's there, you know, he writes about her in Latin for years and years and years. Um, wow. But it's, it's a really significant story. But I think, you know, this part of being a critical biographer is that you don't really have the liberty to admit that kind of a story, especially when it's so significant in understanding his, his young life no. um, and how much he, he struggled with singleness and how much that affected him as a pastor. Uh, but also what freed up the time to do all of the reading involved in, and also then the writing and producing re the reform dogmatics probably quite hard to do if you've got a bunch of kids in young life and if you're a very active engaged parent for example uh, i think part circumstantially part of what enabled him to write the dogmatics was that he was single and, and a bit lonely and just channeled that all into reading a lot of books and being able to devote a lot of time to to writing now in terms of so maybe the other biographers kind of dealing with the context that immediate family members you know would be reading or watching what is, has have you had any interactions with with the Bavink family at all? I have with with some members of the family, which has been uh, a real privilege. Um, and I think when you're writing about someone's life story, 
you do have to be sensitive to um, family members and to deal very respectfully with what for me is a fascinating piece of history, uh, but for them it's it's family history as well. So it was a real privilege to meet some members of the the wider Baving family. Um, so that happened well, quite early on in this project. Um, so I worked in the Netherlands for three years before I was appointed in Edinburgh. And just after I was appointed here, I was trying to work out how do I continue to develop my research on Bavinck back in Scotland. I'll have to gather a lot of sources. And I was trying to work out some of the logistics of how I sourced all these old Dutch books, which I had access to you know, in Dutch libraries very easily there, but which wouldn't have been so easy to find in Scotland. And my university librarian forwarded me an email uh, shortly before I was about to leave the country after three years there to say that a man called Wim Bavink, um, so a great, great nephew of Herman Bavink, had offered a selection or offered a pretty complete collection of Bavink's published works to the library of this university in Kampen. Um, but the university already had copies of all of those books, as you would expect, being a Dutch theological library. Right. But the librarian said, um, these books are, you know, the family doesn't need them anymore. They're, um, and they're, they would like to find someone who can make use of them. Um, so the next day I got in my car and drove across the country and had a really wonderful afternoon um, talking about their family history with Wim Bavink and, and his wife, uh, which was just a, a lovely experience that I'll treasure for a long time. Wow. And then they, I, I left with a couple of boxes of first edition Bavink books no from way. the family, which was just fantastic, and and being able to use so much of that for my for my research for the book as well. So I have I have met some members. So they they are descended from one of Herman's brothers. With Herman's own family line, I've tried to tell the story of, of what happened after he died um, for a couple of generations at the end of the biography. So there's a postscript at the end where I tell the story of his widow. Uh, who was a really formidable and intelligent and talented woman in her own rights, and um, who was one of the leaders of the Dutch Christian women's movement. And then also what happened to um, to their daughter. They, they had one child, a daughter, Hanny, and her husband and her three sons in World War II. So they were active members of the anti-Nazi resistance movement um, when the Nazis occupied the Netherlands. And have their own um, heroic and, and quite tragic tale as well of. Um, well, two of the sons were were shot by Nazis. Um, Bavink's son-in-law was taken to a prisoner of war camp, and then um, was taken to a concentration camp initially, and was being transferred to a prisoner of war camp when he passed away. So, two members of the, of the family there survived World War II. Bavink's daughter and one of her sons. Um, but that's where I end the story. And beyond that, um, it, it was not really my task to to go on telling the story of the extended family line. Those are, are really difficult memories, I think, for the family members then who lived who lived on um, to to retain and to deal with. So I tried to honor um, their family story um, in highlighting and um, telling an un, an untold story, a previously untold story about them. Also, just for people who've read Baving's own Herman Baving's own life story, who want to know well, what became of this um, in the next generations. But then for me as a biographer, the closer I got to, to living uh, family members, and then the further you get into the 20th century, then that's not really my story to tell or my task to tell anymore. Sure. Sure. Well, and one fascinating thing of it too is that it's just right there. I mean, in terms of uh, formidable theologians that have biographies, I feel like Bavink is, is really fun and unique in that, although you've mentioned that there's an English biography, I don't know that I've heard of it. 
So, uh, what a unique opportunity for you to sort of, uh, at least get it going, at least get literature about Bavink going. Yeah, I hope so. Um, I find working on the biography was a tremendous privilege and being able to follow the, the developing life and thought life of such a significant Christian thinker and to try and see how he, uh, how he held the world together in his mind. Um, all at once and living this polymath existence where he fulfills so many roles in society at different points in his life. It, it was just a, a pleasure. It was so fascinating. And I think I learned a lot about um, how to think through Christianity and modern culture um, from trying to trace out Herman Bavinck's life. So I hope that other people find it helpful as a read. Now, you were starting to get into it right before the previous question, but another aspect of the critical biography, I suppose, is that uh, we might owe unrequited love to the motivation of, of like the dogmatics and other things like that. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've mentioned that that part of the story was not in other biographies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, the, one of the previous Dutch biographies does mention in passing that in Bavink's diaries, that there's something there that shows that you know, it's, it's something like he was he was not a young man who was unaware of the attraction of the fairer sex or something like that. Um, so there's a one passing comment that says that he was a you know a young man with feelings, um, romantic feelings like the rest of us could be. But that's all that it says, so it doesn't it doesn't develop that at all. So that's in one of the Dutch biographies. The previous English biography, so it came out in oh maybe a, a decade or so ago um, by Ron Gleason. Um, that's a biography that's really just, it's an English language amalgamation of the two previous Dutch biographies. Um, overwhelmingly, that's what it's led by in terms of content and the story that it tries to tell, which I guess it's just a distinction with a critical biography because a critical, as a critical biographer, you do have to read the previous biographies and evaluate their reliability as source material. Um, and also offer some kind of critical perspective on them as well. Right. Um, but beyond that, you do just have to read all the primary sources for yourself and let the sources tell the story or dictate what's in the story. Um, so I think with the previous English biography, um, because the, the the story of Amelia Dendecker isn't in the Dutch biographies, therefore it wouldn't be in the Gleason biography because oh, the story yeah. that he tells is the story that they tell. Right. So I think that that's part of the worth of of critical biography as a genre, actually, um, because it forces the biographer just to immerse themselves in diaries and letters and unpublished manuscripts and you know the newspaper coverage of this figure's life. It, it means that you you shouldn't really leave stones unturned like that, and you shouldn't assume that previous biographers have said all there is to be said or approach previous biographers as though they don't have an agenda themselves. Right. So when you get into the story of Amelia and Decker and, and Herman Bavinck, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, so the, the, their own church background, their own denomination actually did a very admirable job of record keeping for their denomination. Kind of typical of the 19th century's very modern um, awareness of the need to chronicle your own experiences. And as a church, they did that as a persecuted church. So we actually have a fair bit of information on Amelia on, well, and on her family background, especially uh, she was a farmer's daughter, but we know a fair bit about her father, uh, which is interesting because, you know, 19th century farmer, politically someone who didn't, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't expect him to count for anything, but we know quite a bit about him because of his role in their church and his role in being a very vocal a proponent of their church when it was illegal to be so. So he was a pretty hardcore 
conservative, pietistic, Calvinist. Um, he'd been uh, sentenced to time in prison for his public opposition to the king and uh, had been given some pretty substantial fines over his lifetime as well for his role in their church. And we also know about him that he was someone who had, had very high expectations of the stringent doctrinal orthodoxy of pastors, of preachers in their denomination. So a pretty conservative rural Calvinist, um, and probably not the kind of person in their church who would have thought that it was a great thing that this young pastor's son had gone off to the liberal University of Leiden to get an education, for example, and you know, had no interest in becoming a farmer. But we, so we know quite a bit about this, this young woman's background and her family. And um, so Baving had grown up alongside her. She was a few years older than he was. Uh, he really wanted to marry her. But under the Dutch law of the day, if, if you were under 30, you couldn't just get married without parental permission. And so you had to secure the prospective father-in-law's permission to get married. You had three occasions to do so as well. So Three occasions you know, you, within the law? Yeah, within wow. the law. Wow. And then after that, if you got to a certain age, then you could get married without permission. But you had but that was socially controversial. And you also had to use those three occasions use the three um, attempts first before you had that option. So if you ask when you're 20 and you get rejected, you have to it's not in your best interest to rush back when you're 21. You know, you, you have to make a more <laughs> impressive case the next time. And you have to build a life that convinces this man to let you marry his daughter. And that's the story of Baving's 20s, in effect. And it's interesting because I think it drives a lot of his ambition as well. And, you know, he still just hankers after Amelia um, as, a, as a theology student, as a pastor, as a young professor. And his own life does become extremely um, successful in, in all kinds of fascinating ways, um, in quite original ways as well, because although he becomes a pastor in his denomination, before that, he has gone through the most prestigious university in the country. And really makes all kinds of headlines in the newspapers that someone from this particular church could go to Leiden and become a doctor in theology. I mean, that was headline news in some Dutch newspapers, um, just because it was such an odd thing to happen. Um, and then he becomes a professor in their seminary. So while he's really making waves within their church scene, he's also starting to make waves within the, the wider Dutch academy as well and get some quite significant recognition from the mainstream academy. So he's doing all kinds of interesting things. Um, but this father-in-law is just having none of it and doesn't want his daughter to marry Herman Bavink. We don't know too much about what's happening in the background there, because although Bavink leaves quite detailed notes behind about some of his meetings with the father and letters to the father, um, the father himself just doesn't give reasons. He just will never grant permission. And it could be, of course, that uh, Amelia just didn't want to marry him <laughs> and uh, you know, that, that she had a father's strong will to hide behind. But we, just, we don't know that, but we've got quite a lot of detail on it. But it turns Bavink into a, just quite a lonely figure, actually. And um, some of his friends misunderstood him in terms of his singleness. They thought that it was a, a thing that he did in principle. And, uh, but what you can see in his letters that he, he really wished that, he was, that he'd been married in that phase of life and that he struggled a lot with singleness and loneliness, especially as a pastor. I think that was the most intensely lonely experience of his life. So he was a pastor for about a year and a half in a small town. In their social context, obviously, an unmarried man would never be expected to cook for himself or you know, wash his own clothes or anything like that. Um, so he, the church arranged for him to live with an old couple who took care of his practical needs, but who also treated him with extreme formality, even in his own home. And um, his letters about to some of his friends from that phase about how much he longed for a wife 
So he would have a friend and someone who just saw him as Herman and treated him, you know, allowed him just to un- unwind and relax and be himself. Um, they're, they're, those are very powerful letters to read, actually. They're quite fascinating. Now, one one individual from the Netherlands, another Dutchman that I feel like, especially at least on this side of the world, that uh, seems to be there's countless books about uh, wide distribution of his books is Abraham Kuyper. Can you tell us a little bit about, they, they overlapped. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about the nature of their relationship and, and maybe even points of agreement and points in, in which they contrast a bit? Sure. Um, yeah, so Abraham Kuyper was um, a little bit older than Bavink. For listeners who don't know too much about him, he was a pastor originally in the, the state church, the Dutch Reformed Church, um, so not Bavink's denomination. And he began as a classic liberal, and then he, in his, uh, in his early days as a pastor, um, underwent a kind of pietistic conversion and then what emerges from that is a figure who tried to breathe new life into historic Calvinist orthodoxy, but to do so by developing it in very modern ways, and particularly in expanding Calvinism to address questions in modern culture, so questions that didn't exist in John Calvin's Geneva in, in the 16th century. So then Kuiper becomes this um, theologian, statesman, also really a, a polymath kind of figure as well. Um, also a newspaper editor. He founded the Netherlands' first modern democratic political party. Um, he founded the Free University of Amsterdam. He ended up becoming prime minister in 1901, served a term as prime minister of the Netherlands, um, wrote um, constantly across his lifetime, and was a very unique and unusual personality. So Bavink first heard Kuiper speak uh, So when he was a teenager. Um, so between finishing in the gymnasium in this classical high school and going to the University of Leiden, Bavink spent one year at his church's seminary in Kampen. wasn't particularly enthralled by the the scholarly level of teaching there, but he stayed there for a year and didn't really take part much in classes, and then went to Leiden. But in that year, he heard Abraham Kuyper um, speak. He came to speak at their seminary, and um, from then on. Um, he really gets drawn into Kuiper's orbit. So Kuiper at that point was in effect an independent politician, so not standing on behalf of a party, but he had a vision to develop um, a modern Christian political party to take part in, um, in a democratic system. And he was looking for future leaders there. So he's really a sower who goes out to sow seed for a particular vision of um, liberal democracy, Christianity, and politics. And Kuiper's argument in that phase of his life was that the, that the Reformation itself, the Protestant Reformation, started something that it never finished. And that was the creation, the Reformation, not just of the church, but also the Reformation of society um, to be a Reformation that produces um, li- liberty, um, social freedom. So the lecture that, that he gave in Kempen that Bavink heard was called Calvinism, the Calvinism, the, something like the foundation of our of our freedoms, wow. um, and um, or, of our social freedoms. Um, it's kind of about civil liberties, I guess, in Calvinism. Okay. So the argument there is, is that, that John Calvin had started something that in the modern age now Abraham Kuyper is is picking up, and um, so he's setting out a vision then of of the next phase of the Reformation being that Reformed theology then makes its makes its mark on society as well. 
And so it's, it's a kind of clarion call for young Christians to get to get become a part of his movement and get involved with his way of thinking about Calvinism. So Kuiper starts to talk a lot about Calvinism then as a as a modern force, as a modern way of thinking, and that draws on the the resources of the Protestant Reformation to address modern questions like democracy, um, who should participate in it, um, like questions about um, the industrial revolution, questions about modern science. Um, so there are all these new questions that just didn't exist at the time of the Protestant Reformation. But he thought that the that the Reformed tradition could be something could be allowed to expand to take in those questions and answer them and plot a path forward. In that kind of early phase of life, Kuiper is trying to set up all these Christian institutions like the Free University of Amsterdam and founding this political party, which was called the Anti-Revolutionary Party. And Bavink really catches that vision. But what's interesting there is that a lot of people in Bavink's own church were really skeptical towards Abraham Kuyper uh, for a, a bunch of different reasons. But they, um, they saw a lot of them saw him as tainted because he'd come from the, this, this mainstream church, although Kuyper had then been kicked out of that church. But, um, so they, they were skeptical of him for that reason. Some of them were skeptical, skeptical because of his openness towards modern culture and modern science. But Bavink became much closer to Kuyper in his own ways of thinking. And that led him to feel in a sense, quite alienated in his own church. And also as a professor in his seminary, he felt quite alienated there. But it ended up with um, Bavink moving to teach at the Free University of Amsterdam and work to, well, he didn't work with Kuiper because the reason that that vacancy opened up was because Kuiper had become prime minister and then had that as his job. And then all of a sudden there was a spot for teaching dogmatics, uh, which was Bavink's, field, Bavink's area in Amsterdam. So he moved there to do that. So they their lives really can only be explained in relation to each other, and especially Bavink's life, um, because Kuiper is this just seismic figure um, who influences him so much. But there's also quite a bit of tension there between them over their lifetimes that I try to chart a little bit in the biography. Um, some of that is basic personality type. Kuiper was relentlessly public. Um, he lived his whole life for the participation and observation of the public. Um, Bavink was a much more private person in the first place. Um, Kuiper was very much a, like a, a huge picture figure, um, not even a big picture, just you know, he has a plan for the whole world and has a vision for how it all fits together and has a very kind of deductive way of thinking about that. Um, you know, so you know the big picture and you're going to fit all the parts together to make up that picture. Whereas Bavink was um, a much more um, inductive thinker. You know, so you begin with your sources and then you work up your way up from them very slowly and carefully and make sure that, that claim by claim, everything is, is carefully reasoned and stacks up. And, and that leads to lots of tensions over, over the course of their lifetimes, especially, I think, in the last decade or so of, of their lives, because they died quite closely to each other, where they had just quite different views in the end on how you envision society in the 20th century, what's Christianity's place within it, what kind of cultural changes can Christianity accommodate. And um, so they, they differ quite a lot in that phase, especially on issues around um, women functioning as individuals within society. So there's, there's quite a lot of tension there towards the end. There's another layer of the relationship as well that, that I've tried to develop a bit in my work, um, not so much in, in the biography, but in a, a, a book chapter that, that just came out um, this month in the Oxford Handbook of the Reception of Thomas Aquinas. Um, so this is going a little bit off piece from the interview question, but it's it's a I think it's a significant part of how we should understand their relationship. Yes, please. So when Abraham Kuyper wrote what he intended to be his his magnum opus, his life work, he wrote a three volume encyclopedia of sacred theology, 
And um, it's a really interesting work for all kinds of reasons. Um, only one volume of it was published in English. Um, so the whole three-volume Dutch work is a, is a very different piece of work. So I wrote a chapter for a book on how Abraham Kuyper places Thomas Aquinas, the medieval Catholic theologian, in his Encyclopedia of Sacred Theology. And one of the things I discovered there is that in Kuyper's Encyclopedia, he says that across the history of Christianity, there's always been two distinct kinds of genius. So there are some geniuses in the history of Christianity whose genius is a genius of perception. So they can see an insight that the ordinary eye cannot see, but they don't have um, the ability to take what they've seen, to take that insight and craft it into something much bigger and more careful. But it's a distinct kind of genius to be able to spot something that no one has seen before. And then there's the second kind of genius, which is the genius of mastering the thing, that insight that someone else has perceived. So you see that insight and then you can really work it into something that is intricate and ornate and careful. So the, the image that, that Kuiper uses for this is the image of a gold digger, someone who you know descends into the mine and in the darkness is a genius of perception to seize this vein of gold in the rock and then is able to take up a huge nugget of raw gold to the surface. So that's a distinct kind of genius for Kuiper. And he says that that's the kind of theologian who has the seminal insight, but who doesn't necessarily produce you know, the, the really careful refinement of that insight into um, a great work of theology. And then the, the other kind of genius, the image he uses is for the goldsmith. So someone who can take the lump of raw gold, who can smelt it, and then who can craft it into a spectacular ornament. And he says that that's a different kind of theologian. He'll take the great insight and then he'll turn it into a very careful work of theology. And um, so when Kuiper writes his own life work, the big question for me is, what kind of genius is he saying that he is? Because he right. did think that he was a genius. Right. And I think my view is that Kuiper thought that he was the gold digger kind of genius, that he, that he, was a, he thought he was a genius of perception and that he'd seen something about the development of Christianity in his own age which was that in the modern world, after the Enlightenment, in a secularizing context, Christianity is subject to a new challenge to justify its own existence in a way that it hadn't before in the pre-modern world. Uh, you know, like after maybe like after Constantine, let's say, you know, Christianity becomes so dominant that it's just a given, and um, it doesn't face a, a radical attack on its on its very worth at all. Whereas in the aftermath of the Enlightenment, the question in the Western world is, do we even need this? Or should we just get rid of the whole thing? Should we progress beyond it and, and reject it? So Christianity has to account proactively now for why it's a good thing and why it's the truth. And it has to do that across every like, sphere of its own existence. And Kuiper thought that that particular prompting, that historical circumstance then, had led to his great insight, which was that Christianity is truly a faith for all of life, and that Christianity reforms the whole of life around itself. So it doesn't just reform the church, it also reforms you know, your social life, it reforms civic society, it reforms art, and reforms economics, and reforms politics, and it changes all of these things. And so Kuiper thought that that was his great insight, the application of the Christian faith to all of life. But if Kuiper is a genius of perception, if he's the gold digger, but not the goldsmith, then he needs a goldsmith. He needs a different kind of genius who will smelt his lump of gold and then craft it into something very careful. 
so his historical precedent for this was he said that Augustine is a genius of perception and that he perceived that Christian doctrine is a thing, right? That there's organized, distinctly Christian thought about God. And, um, but he then doesn't develop that into, you know, like, like a very careful systematic theology. But then he says that Aquinas in the history of Christianity was the genius of mastering the thing that Augustine perceived. And then he writes the Summa, Summa Theologica right. as a kind of smelting and refinement and careful crafting of what it, the, the lump of gold that Augustine had brought up to the surface. And I think what it looks like then with Bavink and Kuiper is that Kuiper has gone into the mine of you know the enlightenment and its attacks on Christianity. And then he's pulled up a lump of gold, he thinks, which is this realization that the Reformation needs to carry on. And um, it's now prompted to do so in a new way where Christianity is going to reach, you know, hitherto un unreached greatness and glory um, in its application to all of life and its ability to enrich all of life and to help human beings live before the face of God in all of life as a truly Catholic faith. That's that lump of gold that's been brought to the surface, but he's looking for a goldsmith. And I, th I think my argument is that then that Bavink is his goldsmith. He's the he's this young, careful thinker um, that Kuiper was looking for, who then writes the Reformed dogmatics as the kind of like in a, in a Thomas Aquinas style, the summa of the neo Calvinist Kuiperian tradition. So they have that aspect of the relationship as well, which I think is interesting. And I've tried to bring that out a little bit in the biography with right. the role that the Baving plays in public before their church um, as someone who explains Kuiper's thoughts a bit for their denomination um, and who tries to kind of moderate Kuiper's own ideas um, and refine them a bit in the life of their church. So that puts Baving in quite a, in a, in a delicate position between his denomination, a lot of whom were actually quite skeptical of Kuiper, and Kuiper himself. Um, who could be a very polemical figure. And, you know, Kuiper was a difficult person to be critical of in public just because of his particular personality type and role within society. But Bavink had to be critical of him. But Bavink had to do that very diplomatically as well. So I think that shows you the, the kind of social role right. that Bavink played as a theologian, right? As a public theologian in a really interesting light, um, as the, the goldsmith to um, Kuiper's gold digging. One assignment that I remember, so I, I went to a, a Bible college and there was one assignment in particular that I feel like sort of stuck with me in terms of how, how to think about this particular moment of history. So we, one of the, I think we had to read through Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism. We read Chesterton's Orthodoxy, uh, J. Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism. And, and maybe Lewis's mere Christianity, but essentially, you know, the turn of the century and a sort of modern moment, what is the Christian reply, I suppose? And, and you, mm. you're sort of talking about this moment as well. If that same assignment was given, if you gave that assignment, what book uh, from Bavink would you provide for a student to read through? Yeah, I think, do I have to choose just one? Uh, <laughs> no, 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 please. Well, the I more, think, the merrier. Yeah, sure. So I think there are two that I would assign. Um, the first would be his book, Philosophy of Revelation. Um, so this book was originally prepared around 1908. Um, so in the early 20th century, when Bavink is very much caught up in trying to think as a Christian in response to atheism. Uh, so there had been a tremendous growth in popular atheism in the Netherlands 
in the, at the very beginning of the 20th century, after the death of Friedrich Nietzsche, the German atheist. And Nietzsche had developed a, a new kind of atheism. It was very novel in Dutch culture, novel all over the place, really, which said that if God is dead because we have killed him, we are now under no obligation to carry over any of the moral consequences of the old theism. So if you take God out of the picture, the whole picture changes really radically. So if you compare that to an influential um, atheist from a few decades before, so like in, in Germany, there was a guy called David Friedrich Strauss, um, who wrote a really influential work that basically said, you know, we shouldn't call ourselves Christians anymore. None of us really believes. And um, we should just admit to that. And But if we do that, then we'll really happily enjoy the culture around us much more so, um, because we won't have this charade of, of religion and religiosity. But life will basically remain the same. It'll just be happier. Um, we'll still enjoy our glorious Prussian culture, but nothing will change other than that we'll be more honest. So Strauss was arguing that and, and was uh, influential in some circles as he did so. Whereas Nietzsche came along and said, this is nonsense. If you remove God from the picture, the picture has to change and we have no idea what it will change into. And that's quite a fearful prospect. Um, but we have to revalue all values in Nietzsche's own language. So that then became, I mean, that wasn't really influential at all in the Netherlands during Nietzsche's lifetime. But very surprisingly, after Nietzsche died, it quickly became very popular. And there was almost a cult of Nietzsche in some parts of Dutch society. And people were actually choosing to enter completely uncharted territory uh, in an act of unchristianizing or something like that of Dutch culture without any real sense of where things were going to land. So this became very popular. And it became very popular not simply to see Jesus as benign but irrelevant, but actually to see Jesus as bad, to see Jesus as the thing that has held us back in all kinds of ways and as the great deceiver um, who tricked us into accepting weakness and in, in, in Western culture and in Dutch culture as well. So Bavington becomes very engaged with responding to this growth of Nietzsche and atheism, to a new kind of atheism. So his book, Philosophy of Revelation, is his attempt to respond to that. So his name, Nietzsche's name is only mentioned a few times in it, but the whole book is really a response to Nietzsche. Um, and just to these great questions of the ongoing viability of Christianity in the 20th century, or whether Christianity itself is the problem and the thing that we should fight against with all our might. So it's, it's a really fascinating book. It's a ser it started off as a series of lectures that he gave in Princeton in 1908, um, the Stone Lectures, which were quite prestigious lectures to give, um, still are. So he gave these the Stone Lectures, and essentially it's, it's a piece of apologetics for the reasonableness of belief um, based on revelation. So historically, the Christian faith has been based on the belief that, that we can know God and that the knowledge of God is possible for us as creatures, as human beings. And it's possible because God knows himself in the first place. God knows himself perfectly and exhaustively. And then God chooses to share from that knowledge of himself. So he reveals, and he discloses of himself that which we could not possibly have known if God hadn't shared it, because it was God's own self-knowledge. So God's revelation of himself then 
as Christianity classically is the basis of all claims about God. And then in a Christian view of the world, um, it becomes the basis of our claims for everything, actually, and our way of knowing ourselves and of God. Philosophy of Revelation is an attempt to argue for the reasonableness of that, of believing that God reveals, that God reveals himself. And the way that Bavin goes about doing that is by arguing that actually, even in the modern world, no atheist truly lives by his creed, that there is no revelation. And everyone lives out a kind of de facto theism, even if we say that we don't. In a way, it's a kind of inversion of the like the David Strauss argument that I mentioned before. Right. That we should all just be honest and enjoy the culture we have and be honest by saying that we don't believe in God. Actually, Bavink's philosophy of revelation flips that around to say that we should all be honest and enjoy uh, on we should all be honest and admit that the life that we enjoy that rests on the assumption that God does exist. So he has arguments for why we can't meaningfully talk about history unless we affirm that the possibility of revelation, why we can't talk about culture, why we can't account for the ubiquity of human religiosity, why we can't have a meaningful concept of the future um, unless we affirm belief in revelation. So he's really trying to put the ball back in the courts of um, the the anti-Christians in his context. But there's also a really interesting personal backdrop to this in that Bavink sustained a lifelong friendship with uh, a man called Christian Snukerchronje, um, who was a liberal the- theology student who then converted to Islam and, and um, lived a really unusual and, and very interesting life, but was just a, a skeptic towards Bavink's orthodox Christianity. And Bavink, he would read Bavink's publications and critique them in private and um, to Bavink, and Bavink would do the same for Snukerchronje's writings. But this piece of apologetics for the Christian faith was, I think, primarily personally directed to one of his own best friends who was not a Christian. And you know they engaged with each other by letter afterwards on on Baving's arguments. So there's also just that really interesting personal investment in this too. That, that Baving's not just writing this to you know like a Twitter audience of completely <laughs> disembodied people that he can't even imagine in person. He's actually writing it to one of his own best friends who wasn't a believer in Orthodox Christianity. So that's a really important work. I think it's a very accessible work as well, um, very clearly thought through and presents quite substantial problems for his, uh, for his intellectual opponents in his context and sets out some quite compelling reasons for the reasonableness of belief that, that God practices self-revelation. So that's a really important work. Um, I think that the next step up from that um, is a companion book that he wrote called Christian Worldview, um, mm. which I translated with two of my former PhD students, Grace Utanto and Corey Brock. We released it with Crossway a couple of years ago. It's a shorter book, but it's Baving, and, and, it, and it's, it's a den- more dense book to get into than Philosophy of Revelation. But it's Baving's attempt to argue that the modern world and the modern concept of the self really struggles to draw things together to make life intellectually and existentially satisfying. But if modern people turn to and return to Christianity, Christianity is the thing that reorders all of the disharmony and the disorder in modern and in, in, in the modern West as people try and develop a, an intellectually, existentially satisfying life and worldview. 
So it's his attempt to do some kind of philosophical apologetics as well in answering the great questions of the age. And he's interacting with philosophers, biologists, physicists, theologians. So it's quite interdisciplinary as well. It's, it's quite a densely packed, tightly argued um, piece of work, but it's also quite a, an interesting and significant one as well. Um, it's probably not as easy a read as Philosophy of Revelation, though. Probably reflects the background in, in that the Philosophy of Revelation was given in Princeton, but it was they were intended as public lectures. Right. So he was he tried to write them so that if members of the community in Princeton turned up, that it would be accessible to them. Um, whereas Christian worldview was based on lectures that he gave to uh, students at the Free University. So just the level is is a bit more demanding. Um, but those two books are are, are really significant ones. Um, I would say that that alongside those, in the biography, I've tried to give a biographical narrative of what he was doing and thinking, and especially this, the 20th century, as he engaged with the, the big questions uh, nationally and internationally in, in his own context as well, uh, social questions, theological questions, philosophical questions. Now, I have asked too much of your time. So thank you so much for spending this amount of time with us. Your book is available in, I assume, everywhere. Um, yeah. Is there anywhere folks can, so they can go get that book? Is there anywhere they can keep up with you and what you're up to that you'd want to send them? Yeah. Um, yeah, you can keep up with me, uh, I guess, on Twitter is probably the obvious place. I'm there, um, Dr. James Eglinton, um, all one word. I try and give snippets of things that I'm working on there. Um, I also have a, I mean, I have a blog uh, on WordPress. Um, jameseglinton.wordpress.com um, where I put stuff from time to time. So yeah, I, I do try and keep some of my research and writing out there for the public. Excellent. So go find him in those places. Get Bovink, a critical biography. Also, am I going to get very judged for having said Bovink? I feel like you have a cool way of saying Bavink. Bavink. Is, yeah, so is that how you say it? Am I've, I've spent the whole interview saying it wrong. Yeah, I? you know, so with... The, with names as they transfer across languages, um, they shift anyway. So I think if, as long as you put the emphasis on the first syllable, so it's not okay. badink, it's badink. Right, right. Um, okay. But then, you know, in Dutch, uh, the letter V is pronounced as an F in English. So it's really badink. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't lose too much sleep about how you pronounce <laughs> it across different languages. Okay, good. Because if then, I know, say it the way you, you say it, I'm going to get, somebody's going to punch me. You know, it's going to sound well, like you I'm... Know, it's, it's that awkward feature of, you know, if you know how something is pronounced by the natives, um, but nobody pronounces it right. like that in your own context, <laughs> usually you find that you, like, you fall somewhere between the middle in a no man's land of pronunciation. It's like, you know, with like, Vincent van Gogh. Um, it's just like it that. It should be said in Dutch. But, you know, so no one in the Netherlands says Van Gogh. It's oh, wow. Van Gogh. Gogh van no Gogh. way. Um, and in the UK, everyone says Van Gogh, but it's also not Van Gogh. Uh, so, you know, I always want to say Vincent von Gogh, um, but if I say that in the UK or in America, <laughs> people just don't know what I say. So they don't know what I'm saying. So it's, it's a little bit awkward with Bavink and also with Kuiper as well, because in Dutch you would say Kuiper instead of wow. Kuiper, but you know. Or gymnasium. I mean, that's where we play dodgeball, but that's where Bavink yeah, learned like, you know, it crazy. Latin and Greek. Yeah. yeah, it's wild. That's wild. Indeed. Well, Dr. Eglinton, thanks so much again. Uh, you've been very kind with your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. It was great to talk. Cheers. Cheers.